Hello and welcome to Tuesdays at APA Chicago, our monthly after-hours lecture series held at APA's Burnham Conference Center. My name is David Morley. I'm a senior research associate at APA and host of Tuesdays at APA Chicago. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. Selected past programs are also available as podcasts, and you can see the APA website for additional details. Tonight we have with us Adam Rosa from Camiros Limited. Adam is a senior associate at Camiros, which is a land, which is a Chicago-based urban planning firm. In his work, he continuously strives to generate creative planning and urban design concepts that capture and celebrate the spirit and potential of the local culture. And Adam was recently chosen as one of the 2013 Next City Vanguard 40 Under 40 High-Level Creative and Ambitious People Who Seek to Improve Their Cities. The HUD Choice Neighborhoods Initiative aims to transform neighborhoods through the revitalization of distressed public housing and the creation of economic, social, physical, and educational initiatives. Adam is here tonight to compare and contrast planning efforts in two different choice neighborhoods. His case study communities are the troubled Ellis Heights neighborhood of Rockford, Illinois, and the rapidly changing Rosewood neighborhood of Austin, Texas. Please join me in welcoming Adam Rosa. Thank you very much. Well, when David first uh, contacted me about this presentation, he never told me it was going to be 10 degrees below zero the night of the show. So I want to welcome you all and say thank you for coming. I know it's, 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 a, it's kind of rough out there. So to start the presentation, I thought I'd leave you, I'd, you know, kick it off with this image here. Everybody soak it in. Just pretend you're there. And, uh, you know, just, just embrace it. So the next thing I'm going to do after this is uh, petition the APA to make sure you get double your credits for surviving Chiberia tonight because... This is a this is a tough this is a tough gig, so but anyway I want to talk I'm here to talk about the HUD Choice Neighborhoods Initiative and and the way that we're applying this Choice Neighborhoods Initiative to two different communities as David mentioned in Rockford Illinois, and in Austin Texas and there couldn't be two neighborhoods or two cities that were were more uh, unalike than these two communities but what what is the HUD Choice Neighborhoods Initiative? Well, really, it's a cohesive and comprehensive approach to neighborhood redevelopment and public housing redevelopment that focuses on these three key elements, and that is housing, people, and neighborhoods. So it's all about transforming affordable housing and distressed housing into a mixed-income community. It's about providing opportunities for the people that live in the public housing and the people of the surrounding neighborhood, uh, social, economic, educational opportunities they really go beyond what HUD had been doing before in the uh, HOPE 6 program. So this is really taking a broader view. And then the neighborhood improvement uh, section of the, of the trifecta that really looks at, okay, well, we got a public housing community right in the center of a neighborhood. How, do, how does the redevelopment of that public housing and how do the programs that are applied to that public housing improve the surrounding neighborhood as a whole? So how it works is that uh, for example, in 2012, HUD granted 17 communities planning grants of uh, approximately $200,000 to $300,000 to create these choice neighborhood plans, these choice neighborhood initiatives. And once you create the plan, you have the ability to then go back to HUD and 
go after an implementation grant of which in 2012, four communities were awarded up to $109 million to actually implement the plan and to bring it to fruition. So you're going to see a lot of great ideas in both the Rockford and the, and the Austin plan that I'm going to be presenting tonight. But the key is, how do you make the plan so good that HUD can then come back and say, all right, you deserve you know, up to 25 to $30 million to help to actually implement this plan and to redevelop the public housing. So as David mentioned, this is a tale of two cities, a tale of two neighborhoods. On one hand, you have Rockford, Illinois, which is your uh, traditional Rust Belt, smaller city. Uh, it's, it's got a lot of the, the same issues of larger cities like Chicago, but it doesn't have a lot of the resources to deal with these kind of issues. You have Austin, Texas, which is your uh, booming Sun Belt tech center. Uh, tremendous population growth, tremendous changes that are happening here. So how does this Choice Neighborhood Initiative get applied to these two different contexts? And I'm going to talk about that tonight. So in terms of the comparing the two cities, you got, you got Austin here up to about 850,000 people over the last 20 or 30 years, and you have Rockford that's kind of leveled out at about 150,000 people. So we're going to start with Rockford. So greetings from Rockford, home of the Rockford Peaches. Cheap trick. <laughs> and according to Forbes, misery. So it's rated number number three uh, most miserable city. But this is one of the things that we need to we need to uh, you know deal with in our planning is the perception of the community as a whole, not just the west side of Rockford, but the entire city. And and you know these these lists come out all the time, and and people pick up on these on these uh, news items, the most miserable city. So if you look at Rockford as a whole, this is downtown, uh, kind of straddling the Rockford River. And our study area is just west of downtown. It's, it's the west side of Rockford, also known as Ellis Heights. Ellis Heights is about, you know, about 10 by 6 blocks, so about 60 square blocks. And the focus area of Ellis Heights and of our planning, uh, our planning process has been the Fairgrounds Valley Public Housing Development, which is right here. And the initial goals of the Rockford Choice Neighborhoods Plan transform Ellis Heights, which is the neighborhood as a whole, into a neighborhood of opportunity and choice to rebuild Fairgrounds Valley as part of an integrated plan for revitalizing the entire neighborhood and to catalyze investments in neighborhood revitalization to improve the overall quality of life for the neighborhood residents. So when you type in Ellis Heights into Google, these are some of the, the news stories that you get right off the bat. So you get poor town, the wrong side of Rockford used to be all right. Rockford police confront crime spike that's not going to go away. So these are these perceptual issues that, that are just plaguing this neighborhood. So we needed to deal with that right off the bat. So the planning process is, is really focused on tackling these issues of community perception because this is a, a part of Rockford that really hasn't seen a lot of reinvestment or, or really uh, positive change in 30 or 40 years. So the first thing that we did was we made sure that this was a community-based planning process. So we developed a neighborhood planning handbook, which is similar to the handbook that I have back there on the table, but it's all about uh, kind of en engaging and enabling the, the, uh, the local residents, both the public housing residents and the neighborhood residents as a whole, as the planners for the Choice Neighborhood Plan and helping them get involved. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the, the span of the plan that we've created here. So it started in 2012. It was a two-year-long planning process. 
So in 2012, you had your kind of your typical set of community meetings. You know, we came, we talked about issues and opportunities. We rolled it into vision, and we went into the alternatives and, and so forth. And we also had the task force meetings. And along the way, we had different working group meetings to tackle certain subjects of the plan and certain priorities. Well, this is all well and good, but I think what sets the Choice Neighborhood Initiative apart is the next year. So this is when all of our kind of uh, the foundation that we uh, laid for the plan started to pay off and started to spin off into a series of different programs that actually started to get implemented as we were planning. And I think that's a real key to what this process is all about. So I'm going to go back. So we got four community meetings and we got, you know, all this stuff. In 2013, we started to get a partnership with Etsy, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. Partnerships with the University of Illinois to deal with some of the issues in the planning area. Um, we had block parties. We had Father's Day events. We had different regional planning processes uh, that had to do with the International Day of Peace, the foreclosure mitigation project that came from the Attorney General's office. So all of these projects were set in motion by the, the framework that we laid in the first year. So let's talk about the neighborhood. So the Ellis Heights neighborhood, 30%, 18 and younger. There's about 1,800 units. 60% was was built before World War II. 65% renter occupied, and that, that, that was a big issue in, in trying to engage the landlords in the area, the absentee landlords. Uh, at least 375 vacant units, or vacant house, houses within this neighborhood. And 55% of the median income for Rockford, which the median income is not that high for the city as a whole. So this is kind of the, the neighborhood of last resort in a city that, that isn't really uh, known as being a place of first resort. So first we, we, we talked about some of the neighborhood assets, and one of the things that's happening there, the, the main street of the neighborhood has, has been turned into a greenway or is in the process of turning into a greenway. So we wanted to acknowledge that, that's State Street. Uh, we also have a lot of local churches, or, which are really the touchstones for the community. And as we did our community outreach, we really wanted to respect and reflect the fact that these churches are really the bedrock of what's happening in Ellis Heights right now. So that was a key point for us. So as we look at the neighborhood as a whole, what I identified is anchor blocks of preservation. So these are blocks where 75% or more of the properties are in fair to good condition based on a visual survey. So you got the, the blocks in blue here. They're, they're in fair to good condition. They look you know, about like this. There's a few new houses scattered about, but typically uh, pre-war uh, wood-framed houses, you know, some are upkept and some are, are, are not as well-kept, but overall these are the blocks that are, that are solid. Neighborhood challenges. So we identified a series of challenges in terms of the neighborhood, the people, and the housing. And we wanted to approach those challenges and, and certain things that you'll see throughout the plan that, that really make me excited because as a planner, so much of what you do is 10 or 20 years down the line. So Getting things making things happen while you're planning is something that is uh, incredibly important. So you see these little green flags throughout the presentation. These are all things that started to happen through our planning process. So you know we identified neighborhood challenges and we started to um, identify early action projects that could help to affect some of these neighborhood challenges. So uh, if you look at the neighborhood as a whole. I don't call it the blocks of challenge, I call it the blocks of potential because these are the areas where 25% or more properties are rated vacant to poor condition. So as you can see, there's, there's quite a few. 
Um, as you go around, you don't, you don't encounter a block that doesn't have a, a boarded up house in this neighborhood. You really don't. So we wanted to identify the areas that really had the, the most potential for wholesale change. And these are what the blocks of potential look like. So you have, uh, you know, you have vacant lots, you have boarded up houses, you have places that are in, in poor to fair condition, um, all that affect the neighborhood as a whole. And at the center of this, we have the focus area, which is the Fairgrounds Valley Housing Complex. And this includes 210 apartments on 15 acres. And as you can see, the, even the housing complex is split uh, on the west and in, on the east by a set of active freight rail tracks and by Kent Creek, which kind of weaves through the center of the complex. So, you know, you have 210 units, and it's split into two, di two directions. This is what it looks like. So it's, you know, circa 1950s, 1960s public housing, barrack style, around courtyards that are um, really not landscaped and not well cared for. So a lot of indefensible space, as we, as we always talk about as planners. Um, just, a, just, just kind of a layout that doesn't really build community or build neighborliness among, amongst the residents. But right next to Fairgrounds Valley, you have this uh, really, really beautiful park called Fairgrounds Park, where coincidentally the first professional baseball game in the country happened here at Fairgrounds Park. So there's a lot of history that happened right in this area. So we wanted to start to reflect that in the plan, and we thought it was important because you go there today and there's nothing that tells you that that ever happened. So the vision and the pathways forward. So we, with the help of the community, which is the public housing residents and the neighborhood as a whole, we developed this vision statement, which is longer than most vision statements and probably longer than uh, it should be, but I'm going to read it anyway. So all too, all too often neighborhoods become known by headlines, statistics, and obstacles no, no longer. From today forward, we believe in creativity, opportunity, and power and motivation in ourselves. From today forward, we will promote, discover, believe, and mix it up. Ellis Heights will be a desirable place to live, creative, safe, affordable, clean, and pleasant. There will be strong homeownership, respectful and responsible neighbors looking out for the welfare of others. It will be a community where children are nurtured, families can grow, seniors can enjoy their years. It will embrace the creativity of its residents and build a strong local arts economy. And this is something that's, that's kind of brand new, this, this new idea. In addition to homes for more traditional businesses and enterprises, Ellis Heights will be a responsible community with active leadership and strong institutions. So how do we make that happen? So we set, it up, we set up a series of strategic initiatives, and we have seven initiatives all together, which are kind of the, the building blocks of the Choice Neighborhoods program. Uh, so we have neighborhood improvements, housing, education, income and jobs, safe, healthy neighborhood, uh, focus on youth, and community engagement and capacity building. So as you can see, this is a HUD program, but it's not just about redeveloping affordable housing. It's about all these different things coming together. So if we start with neighborhood improvements, some of the projects we started to identify, uh, there was a, there was a, a uh, shuttered um, you know, 1890s public school building in the neighborhood that we thought this would be a great location for a neighborhood teen center. The, public, the RHA actually bought the building over the last year and is working to actually rehabilitate it into a teen center. So this is an early action project that's happening. We identified the creek that ran through the neighborhood and ran through the public housing site. Right now it's a divider. We wanted to bring it, make it a unifier of the neighborhood because on one side of the creek you have downtown Rockford. On the other side you have Ellis Heights, which is this neighborhood. So how does the, how does the creek and the natural, um, the natural pattern 
of the area actually help to bring, bring people together rather than split them apart. So we wanted to identify a creek improvement effort, urban agriculture, uh, the West State Street Corridor, uh, just a whole range of neighborhood improvement projects. So for this, for this process, we really look, we work from the outside in. And that's going to be a little bit different than when I talk about Austin because that was really an outside, an inside out type of process. So for each of these initiatives, we set up um, implementation, implementation matrices. And this is not unlike what you see in a lot of different plans, but I think one of the, uh, the keys to this and, and one of the things that HUD always wants to see is how do you track the metrics of it? So you get the, the metrics of today, so they can say in five to 10 years, how did those metrics change? So we have, we have the desired outcomes, the performance metrics, the strategies, and then each of the projects. So when we talk about housing, it's really twofold, or actually it's threefold. The first is looking at opportunities in, in, those, in that block structure that I showed you before to identify blocks where you could do uh, change that would really be significant. So you have a block and you come in and you, you're able to provide some infill housing to help strengthen the neighborhood as a whole. Secondly, the city took on an approach where it wanted to look at, uh, look at affordable housing in a regional context. So we started to work with the Winnebago, housing, or Winnebago, Winnebago County Housing Authority, as well as the City of Rockford Housing Authority, to identify other public housing sites that were not on the west side of Rockford to look at replacement housing in, in this area. The Fairgrounds Valley site itself, we uh, reprogrammed as a mixed income on a mixed-use housing development. And we looked at it in phases with a variety of different housing types from small lot single family onto um, you know, stacked flats and townhouses. So we wanted to provide a different range of options that could happen here. And in doing so, we wanted to embrace the creek, and we wanted to embrace the Fairgrounds Park, and we wanted to create connections to the surrounding neighborhood because right now it's an island of poverty in an area that is only slightly, uh, that only has really slightly more income than, the, than the, the public housing site as a whole, but we wanted to integrate it, and that's one of the goals of the process. So along with the housing, we wanted to tackle income and jobs, so we started to set up an initiative based on income and, jo income, income and jobs that would help to enable the public housing residents and the neighborhood residents to um, give them access to, to local jobs that are already existing in Rockford, in the central Rockford area, and to try to identify new ways to uh, encourage entrepreneurship in, in the west side of Rockford. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as we go forward with the Etsy program. But we, we identified sites for, for new development. We identified uh, business incubator locations, and we identified uh, different strategies for tackling the income and jobs issue. Safe, healthy neighborhoods. So one thing that really stood out to me, my very first community meeting in Rockford, uh, we had about 100 people in the room. We had a, a collection of about 10 or 15 young kids that came from the public housing projects, Fairgrounds Valley. We went through our whole spiel. We talked about the visioning and the issues and everything else. And I asked one simple question to one of the children there. I said, you know, what would you like to see in your neighborhood? Uh, you know, is it, do you, do you need more uh, basketball courts, recreation facilities? Do you, you know, do you need, you know, different, different types of ways to uh, get to school or, or to, you know, do anything like that? 
And this young boy, about eight years old, he raised his hand and he just said, stop the shooting. And that just hit me. It was just like, oh my God. So it just really kind of put it all in perspective that creating a safe and healthy neighborhood is, is the most critical kind of step to being able to realize some neighborhood improvement and some reinvestment. So we created a number of strategies that deal with these issues in terms of the healthy side, the urban farm initiative, the safe side, the burn crime prevention uh, grant that we went after as part of this program. Uh, just a number of different things, working with the, the Rockford Police, Police Department and actually designing the Fairgrounds Valley so that it would be safer. And I think that's a key to, to what we've been able to accomplish so far. Focus on Youth has been a major initiative as, as we go forward as well. So a number of different programs, but also just designing spaces where kids feel safe, kids feel healthy, and kids can be kids. Community capacity building. So we, we developed an, an active community engagement program. But the key to this has really been to look for the, the leaders that are already in the community and help to enable them to really come forward and be, be, the, be the proponents of, of the plan, proponents of change. When we first came to Fairgrounds Valley, they didn't have a citizen council. So this is a large public housing site that had no leadership and no real uh, group that really, that really spoke for the residents as a whole. So we helped to develop that through this process. And then the partnerships. So, you know, there's about 50 different groups here in Rockford that were all do, doing different things. So under the umbrella of the Choice Neighborhoods Plan, we kind of brought them together and started to connect the dots. So we were able to create this group called Transform Rockford, which enveloped all of these different agencies that were doing different projects and helped to bring them together. And last but not least, the education initiative. So we set up things like the Week of Possibilities Fair at, at the uh, Fairgrounds Valley that let people understand what job opportunities were out there. And last but not least, we talked about the, uh, the Etsy Craft Entrepreneurship Curriculum. And I'm going to show a little video next about this. What this really is is a, a really unique partnership with Etsy.com and Etsy is a, a website that helps to uh, bring people, bring entrepreneurs together that have uh, the ability to create crafts or arts or goods and get them on an online platform that they can actually start a business and be able to sell what they, what they need to sell. So we worked with the mayor and we worked with uh, the public housing res residents and the schools to set up this curriculum. And... I'm going to show you a video right now that talks about the Etsy partnership. That's right. Rockford's located just northwest of Chicago. We've had a history of a lot of manufacturing. We've had furniture companies. We've been the screw capital of the world. And we do have a lot of maker hands here. People have lost their jobs. Manufacturing companies have moved overseas. It's been hard for people. I'm Carrie McDonald. I am a printmaker. I usually just lift it, peel it up. That's it. I repurpose vintage buttons, and I'm also the team captain of the Rockford Etsy team. An Etsy team is basically a 
self-organized group of Etsy sellers. We help each other out. We learn business skills. It's a really fun time just to get together. The whole point of the Etsy team when I started it over two years ago was that I wanted to actually do something. I had no idea that we would have this official partnership with the city I live in and with Etsy, and they actually come to Rockford. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm super happy to be here. My name is Kim, and I work at Etsy. Coming to Rockford this week to really pilot a program where we can introduce an Etsy education and entrepreneurship to people and sort of see what sticks. Come in, come in. There's tons of look. It's like a craft quarter stream. Kim came to help support our Etsy team as we did a craft party and a workshop for the Rockford Housing Authority residents. They really came to craft party and came to the event saying, I want to open an Etsy shop. They came with things that they made in their bags to show and say, do you think this is good enough? That is crazy. That's so beautiful. It was amazing to see people that could come with this ambition and this dream that they wanted to try something and really leave knowing that they could actually do it and that it could be easy for them. Really think about what your strengths are and what you like about being creative and make sure that that's part of what you're doing in your business because that will give you the motivation to keep going. They said, I'm kind of hard on my luck. I've been a carpenter for 30 years, and you know what? My work dried up. And that's a really hard thing, you know, when you've been really successful and then suddenly you haven't been. My son used to tell me, the only one that wants your old junk, Dad, is you. I don't think I'm really wasting my time, you know. I'm I'm doing what I really want to do, and uh, if I can find a market to sell it, I'll be thrilled to death. I was excited about the workshop, and I also really enjoyed the enthusiasm of all the people. I came away from the idea that uh, there's people that do like handmade things, and there is a market out there, and maybe there is a possibility for uh, some of the things that I make and stuff. I think it's better than a possibility. Letting people know that they are creative in some way is a huge thing to happen. It can inspire them to make a different life for themselves. You know, we're a part of Rockford. We're all community members. And if we don't start helping each other, then, you know, our economy won't help itself. So that, that gives you kind of a feel of what we put together for Rockford. And again, it's really about the looking from the outside in and really trying to, with this Etsy program at least, trying to identify people that, are, that have creative abilities and to really enable them to turn the, their abilities into something more. So if all goes well, and what, what's happened so far is that they've set up an Etsy curriculum in schools, a lot of four or five or six of these people, these public housing residents, actually have Etsy sites up right now. You can go and buy their goods. The next step in the process, if they are successful and, and we can help make them successful, look for space in the neighborhood where they can actually set up a business and set up shops. So 
It's a, it's a three or four step process, but I think it's really exciting. And Rockford's the first city that's been able to do this. The second city that's trying to do this right now is New York City. So they've taken that idea from Rockford and they're running with it. And they'll probably try to take credit for it. And anyway, so we flip over to Austin. So a completely different context. We're applying the same type of choice neighborhood plan, choice neighborhood initiative to it. So Austin, Texas, home of UT, home of uh, you know the capital of Texas, the state capital, all of the bushes, home of Willie, home of people that are weird. And I'm not afraid, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not feeling bad about that I have to go to Austin on Thursday when the temperature is going to be 70 degrees. So I just wanted to put that in there. But anyway, so we got the Austin region as a whole. It's, it's a very quickly growing region. I'm, heard, I'm sure everybody knows the stories about Austin. It's a boom town. It's a tech town. There's a lot going on there. It's very hip. It's really trendy. It's, you know, how to, how to, you know, it's just a really growing, dynamic place. So the area that we're working in, if you have downtown Austin here along the river, we're just east of downtown. And it, as you look at it as a whole, the north side of downtown's been gentrified. The west side of downtown's been gentrified. The south side of downtown's been gentrified. The east side is kind of the place of last resort. In the last five years, there's been tremendous changes that are happening there. So how does the Choice Neighborhoods program reflect a neighborhood that is going through rapid gentrification? So that's one of the things that we're dealing with right now. So we're about halfway through our, our uh, Austin plan. Uh, the study area, again, downtown's over here. You have an interstate that kind of cuts it off. And it's a very large neighborhood with a number of, of uh, different types of actually sub-neighborhoods within it. The center of it is called Rosewood Courts. This is a public housing complex, about 124 units, built in 1939. It's one of the first public housing complexes in, in the country and in Austin. It was dedicated for African-American residents in 1939. So it has a lot of historic value and historic context. So if you take a look at the neighborhood as a whole, these are images that, when you think of Austin, these are the kind of things that pop up. So, you got, you know, the Victory Grill, which is a place where Miles Davis used to play in the 60s, but now it's a, a really cool place to hang out and get a cup of coffee. You got these funky kind of like uh, semi-trailer type houses with lots of public artwork in the, in the yard. You got, you know, this is kind of your traditional east side house that 10 years ago was a working class uh, Hispanic or African American family. Now it's, it's probably three or four... Um, 19 or three or four 20s to 30s white roommates that live here that go to UT. And then you've got a lot of new infill development that is really, um, you know, kind of pushing the borders and pushing the boundaries of, of what fits into the neighborhood. So a lot of interesting dynamic stuff that's happening there. And then at the center of this, you have Rosewood Court. So as I mentioned, this is 1939 public housing, um, you know, two and three story buildings that are arrayed around these landscape courtyards. And Rosewood Courts is right here. And this is the entire planning area. And all these call-outs here, you can't read them all, but they all represent different assets in the neighborhood. So where in Rockford, we had three or four different assets in the, in the neighborhood as a whole. The east side of Austin, man, it's got 80 to 100 different service providers and assets and schools and different places where people can go. So it's an entirely different context. So one of the first things we had to do was develop a, you know, 
since this is Austin, we had to try to create a brand and a uh, kind of social media strategy to the plan to really reach all the folks that live in the east side. And the east side, so before we had, we had Rockford, which was number three most miserable neighborhood. Forbes actually did another list, said America's best hipster neighborhoods. East Austin's number seven. So you can see kind of the differences between these two areas. Uh, this is the city of Austin as a whole. The brown is our neighborhood, and the brown represents 200% or more median single-family value change in the last seven years. So if you bought a house for $100,000, you know, it's worth twice that in 2012. So the degree of change is just, you know, astounding that's happening in this area right now. So how do we use our Choice Neighborhoods project and our plan to help to maintain some affordable housing and to really respect the culture of the neighborhood and make sure that it gets respected and, and uh, really preserved as we move forward. And you walk around East 12th Street, which is kind of the main street of East Austin, and you see a lot of signs like this, artists and hipsters, how are you helping to gentrify East Austin, what are you doing to fight it? It's just, it's on everybody's mind out there. So we really tried to strive and create a, a goal for an equitable plan, which is the creation and maintenance of economic and socially diverse communities, going beyond just improving the neighborhood for economic gain, focusing on the people, history, and values of the community. And i got to say, we had one misstep. Our first community meeting, we came out and we said, this is going to be issues and issues and challenges meeting. And we put up a list like this you know, with different community challenges and issues. And all of a sudden, people just raised their hands, stood up. They said, no way. That's, that's not how we see our neighborhood. They said, you know, we need to approach this from a positive light. Even though there's gentrification happening, even though there's, there's community issues, especially in the public housing, we need to really look at this in a different way. So we came back and we, we said, okay, well, let's just have a meeting where, where everybody gets a chance to share their stories and tell their stories because there's a lot of folks that have lived in East Austin for 50, 60, 70 years, and they have amazing stories to tell. So what are the people, places, and things that reflect the culture and the positive aspects of the community? So people started to tell us about these things. And we created these community storyboards where they were able to really talk about the different elements that make East Austin and Rosewood neighborhoods special. And then, you know, we then took these elements and we're trying to make them an important part of the plan, building from the strengths. So the initial vision for the, the Rosewood project, a true mixed-income community that respects the different cultures and values of the area residents today and tomorrow, and that Rosewood Courts, which is the public housing enhancements, reflect the historic importance of the site, while accommodating the needs for both the current and the new residents. So let's talk about Rosewood Courts. So it's 124 units, 1939. It's on a site that really has a lot of challenges because from the top of the site to the bottom, there's about 35-foot grade change. There's a lot of elderly folks that live there. They don't have laundry. They don't have air conditioning in the units. Uh, there's a lot of just physical, outdated challenges on Rosewood Courts. Here's some of the original images from 1939 when Rosewood Courts was built as one of the first African-American public housing projects in America. Uh, again, here's the kind of the site features. So you, it really is on three different levels. So as I mentioned before, in Rockford, we were building from the outside in. In Austin, we really wanted to focus on Rosewood Courts and then go outward from that. So here's some of the, the challenges of the grade that are happening at Rosewood. 
One of the things we thought would be really interesting is if we took a whole bunch of Rosewood Court's residents and got them on a bus and got them out in the different parts of Austin to visit other affordable housing projects. So we did a day-long bus tour with about 30 different residents and brought them to all of these different places, new and old, and gave them cameras and said, take pictures of the things that you like, because that's going to help us in designing the new Rosewood Courts, because this is, a, this is your plan and it isn't our plan. So after that, we, t we took a lot of the pictures that they gave us, and we gave them, uh, you know, kind of clicker devices to rate the different photos, and they were able to tell us through, like, kind of an image preference survey the types of things that they wanted to see at Rosewood Courts. And we didn't just do this for the outside areas, but also the inside. So people look, were able to vote on stacked laundry versus side-by-side -side laundry and this bathroom versus that bathroom because these are the things that affect people day-to-day. -day. So then going back out into the larger community, you had kind of a, a diff different approaches that were happening. A lot of the newcomers to East Austin and Rosewood Courts they don't want to see more affordable housing in the area. They, I mean, they're not going to say that in a community meeting, but they're essentially like, okay, you know, let's, let's just make sure that this, we keep 124 units and not get any more, and, you know, we don't want any different changes to the, to the neighborhood. So we've really had to balance the viewpoint of, of the residents with the neighborhood as a whole. Uh, one of the exercises we did was looking at Rosewood Courts and how we could kind of redesign it through different public housing or, or different... Um, open spaces and different housing types and how it reflects the surrounding neighborhood. We started to create these, these uh, different alternatives. I'm actually going out to Austin uh, in tomorrow or the, day, the next day for an open house on this. But what we really decided was it's really important, and that, since this was built in 1939, I actually didn't mention before that the, this public housing site was originally the site of Emancipation Park, which was one of the first actually the first place in, in East Austin that recognized the Emancipation Proclamation and that this is a place of community gathering for African Americans in East Austin, you wouldn't know that now if you went to the site. So we've started to kind of reorganize the site and bring back an Emancipation Park to memorialize what happened there before 1939. So the history of it, even before it was public housing, is, is really important. And we want to connect into the surrounding neighborhood with some mixed use and some multifamily, and this has to be mixed income, and different places for children to play, all these different elements. Also critical is the early action projects. And I talked about this a little bit with Rockford, but in Austin, we're about halfway through our two-year planning process. And we've already ticked off about seven or eight early action projects that have gotten a lot of momentum and a lot of uh, positive feedback and a lot of kind of community togetherness happening. We we did a, a park cleanup that was for a park a couple blocks away. We've worked with the elementary school and a creek that runs through the site for cleanup uh, opportunities. This is bringing public housing residents together with neighborhood residents to break down those barriers. We did a big Father's Day event on site. Uh, so all of these different early action projects are really critical, but then also helping to empower residents. So we may have ideas about what Rosewood Courts should be, but it's really going to be the plan for the residents that live there today. So we've done a number, we've taken a number of steps to help to empower the residents to be able to speak out when the neighborhood says, you know, we don't need any more affordable housing, you know, why are we even planning this? Just keep it the same. We've been able to help the residents stand up in a public meeting of 200 people and raise their hand and say, it needs to change because I can't get up my stairs without falling down or I can't do my laundry or you know, display, I can't even post a picture on the wall because they're, they're cement block walls. 
So we've been able to like help the residents get out in front of a large group and really try to express the changes that they, they wanted to see at Rosewood Courts and make it their plan. All right, my last slide. So the key takeaways, I would say, of the two choice neighborhood efforts, number one, put the public housing residents first and help to empower them. Because this is not our plan. As planners, we're just facilitators. You know, this really has to come from them. So what can you do to help empower them? And we've, we've, in Austin, we've created an apprenticeship program where they're helping us at, at community meetings. Um, we want to emphasize neighborhood assets, history, and culture. And also, we, it's essential to build trust in the community. So when you come into a, a public housing community or a, a low-income community or a diverse community, it takes a little bit to, to build the trust. And you really need to reach out to to people one-on-one -on -one and to build that trust. And it's, it's critical because if you don't have that trust, it all just falls apart. Uh, number three, achieve those early action projects to get the real momentum. So I showed you a few there, but there's also others that have happened in Austin. As simple as Rosewood Course is on one side of this busy street. I need to pay my rent check on the other side of the busy street. There's no crosswalk. Well, we've gone out and actually petitioned for a crosswalk for the city of Austin to connect the two sides of the development. Or I live, I live in Rosewood Courts. The nearest grocery store is a mile away, and it's, it's downhill. I've got to walk back uphill. Well, we've gone out and talked to the transit agency in Austin about running a grocery shuttle or changing their bus routes to, let, to help people at Rosewood Courts get to the grocery store. So these are the, the things that you've got to show, and they also help to build that trust because people see real change happening. They don't have to wait for five years. The next one, connect the dots and fostering partnerships because all of this can happen alone. I showed you before that Rockford spreadsheet. There's a whole bunch of projects. There's a whole bunch of different metrics, and it just gets really complicated. Well, you gotta, you got to kind of identify different leaders for these different projects and these different outcomes because they got to take ownership of it, especially in a place like Austin. We're from Chicago. We leave. That plan needs to really uh, it needs to be rooted, and it needs to really... It needs to blossom under the, the local leadership. And last but not least, you've got to roll with the punches. You've got to have flexibility in the process. If you, you, plan, you, you plan a process that's going to have six meetings, you've got to do this, this, and this, and then at the second meeting, it all blows up. You've got to be able to, to kind of roll with it. You've got to be able to change with it, and you've got to be able to be creative and think on your feet in order to really maintain momentum and to, and to uh, get positive outcomes. So... That's it for me. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Adam. And just as a reminder, as we open this up to a Q&A, I'm going to come around with this microphone so that we can record your questions for the podcast. So just put your hands up, and I will come to you. And don't be shy. Hi, um, I was active in LISCs and New Communities Program in Chicago, of which Camaros was part of some of those. And the neighborhood I lived in at the time was one of the NCP neighborhoods. And one of the challenges we found is there's a lot, a lot of organizations that you kind of realize later were organizations in name only. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a lot of meat behind many of them in terms of actual staff, committed volunteers, like actual programming going on. And so you built a plan that was based on a lot of organizations saying, yes, I'm going to take this piece of the plan. But then you realize there wasn't a meat, lot of meat behind those organizations. Sure. Have you run into that? And how have you dealt with really vetting whether the organizations that are stepping up to say, yes, I'm going to take on this 
piece of the plan as a stakeholder, making sure they actually have the capacity to do it. Yeah, well, I think that's critical because it's easy to raise your hand at a task force meeting and say, oh, yeah, we'll, uh, you know, we'll provide after-school programs or whatever. But one of the things that we've done in Rockford, which is the plan we started two years ago, we've developed a, it's called the Westside CDC, which is actually going to be a, kind of an umbrella organization that's going to help implement the plan. And it's made up of leadership of nine different groups, and they're, really, they're tasked to really make sure that the, ta- that the, uh, the, the actions of the plan really, com- really come to fruition. So a dedicated group that's really going to oversee it, I think, is critical. Um, on top of that, the housing authority needs to go above and beyond. So the, the Rockford Housing Authority actually uh, created a position just for implementation of this plan. So, uh, a, you know, a, a fully funded position where this is my job is to look at these implementation steps and make sure they happen. Because, yeah, you can't, you can't always count on people that, that just uh, don't have the resources available to do it. So there needs to be something more to, to provide governance to this type of comprehensive, cohesive planning effort. I'm going to put this picture up just because it's going to make everybody feel really nice right now. <laughs> um, how does how does it uh, the HUD Choice Initiative? How does it get started? Like, who reaches out to who? Um, sure. Do they contract you know a, a planning team to come into a neighborhood? Is it competitive? You know, how mm-hmm. does that? So we're essentially the planning coordinators for two different public housing agencies. The public housing agencies have to apply for grants from HUD to do the plan. So every year there's kind of a cattle call of, of um, you know, we have $300 million. We're looking for public housing agencies to apply for a choice neighborhoods plan. So we got one with, with uh, Rockford Housing Authority. We helped, we helped to write their grant um, in 2012. In 2013, we did the same thing for the Austin Housing Authority. We helped to write their application, their grant to actually get funded. Um, and then from there, you, then you have the implementation grants. So that's a whole other, whole other ball of wax. So in September, we've been, uh, work, we started working with the Rockford Housing Authority to actually go after an implementation grant. And that was a whole other big kind of effort, probably a month-long effort, to really try to get funding for implementation of this plan. So that hasn't been released yet. It hasn't been announced yet. But essentially, we're coordinators under public housing agencies. Technically, it doesn't. I think there's there's been cities that have done it and other types of agencies, but predominantly, it's public housing agencies because they have a site that that needs transformation. Yes. Um, I have another question. I wanted to follow back with hers, though. Is, so, is Chicago involved in any way in the choice program? I believe that the Chicago uh, Housing Authority received an implementation grant, I think, in 2011, 2012, for one of their projects. We haven't been involved with them. Um, I'm not sure if they've gone after other choice plans in, you know, between now and then. Um, my question that I, I was thinking as you were doing this, so, so the implementation is separately, so when you're, at this point in time, yeah. you just have something on paper? Is that what happens? I mean, you actually have developed a plan for these two communities that's written down? We have a plan for the Rockford community because it, we started in 2012. We're about halfway through Austin. 
the plan is sitting back there on the table. Oh, um, so that's this? Well, that's, that's just a community outreach tool. But essentially, um, things are starting to happen from the plan already. Well, the reason I'm asking you is because I just wanted to see how have you connected the dots with private industry. That's what I, I really mm-hmm. wanted to know, if, if you've got builders already on, in place or, or how, how are you doing that? Well, each, each of the different, uh, both of the different processes, we have a developer on board that's really teed up to do the redevelopment if money becomes available to do it. And one of the things that HUD says, and I think it's kind of critical, is that this plan needs to have legs of its own. Even if you don't get the implementation grant from us, you still need to be able to move forward on a lot of these different initiatives and a lot of these different items. So, you know, don't, don't just do your plan to try to hook an implementation grant at the end of it because it needs to stand alone besides that. But yes, we have developers for each of these two different um, plans and they weren't developers hired by us, they were hired by the the housing authority. Um, I'm curious about how you decided to work with Etsy and did the artist entrepreneurial goal come from within the community and what would prevent other Rust Belt cities from having the same success? Well, I don't think anything would really prevent it from having the success. What, what happened was that the mayor of Rockford, who apparently is a big Etsy supporter, reached out to the CEO of Etsy and said, we want to develop an Etsy economy here in Rockford. How can you help us do that? And they, they started a relationship up, and it naturally trickled down to the choice plan that we're doing right now and helping to enable kind of entrepreneurship for public housing residents. So... It, it was kind of a something that, that was ha- that's happening for the city as a whole, but we were able to kind of harness that energy and that that kind of uh, creative spirit, and bring it to the choice plan for uh, for Fairgrounds Valley and for for East, for West Rockford. I don't know what would you know. This is still a test case. I think it's still playing itself out. There's been a number. Of, the first graduating class from the Etsy class um, graduated in November. Uh, there's five or six different different Etsy sites up right now from public housing residents that have goods online to sell. I know a couple of them are doing pretty well from what they're, from what they're selling. I mean, we're just going to have to wait and see, but I think it's, it's a way to kind of think outside of the brick-and-mortar box and really try help to connect people into different, um, different online resources that they wouldn't have known about. It's really exciting. Hi, thanks. You have two very different communities here you're dealing with, two very different economic situations, but in each, you're looking to develop some mixed-income housing. What does the plan do to uh, preclude displacement of poverty-level people by this mixed-income housing, and how do you address that in each of these two cases? Okay. Well, specifically in Austin, we've, we've, we've put the message out that there's 124 public housing units Today, there's going to be at least 124 public housing units on site tomorrow. There may be an additional uh, number of units that, that are market rate and or mixed income on top of what's there today. So the housing authorities come out and just said that. In Rockford, they're taking a different approach, and that is to, we're going to lower the amount of public housing units on site right now, and we're going to look for opportunities in the surrounding city, in the surrounding neighborhood, in the surrounding region that we can better uh, set up public housing that will help to connect people to employment opportunities, educational opportunities, and other locations. So we're going to lower the, 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 um, 
kind of the uh, concentration of public housing in this neighborhood. And we're going to take a regional viewpoint. And we're doing that with help from Winnebago County and from uh, the Rockford Metropolitan Area Planning Commission. So it's, it's more of a regional approach in Rockford. So, yeah. And I kind of wanted to piggyback off on that and ask you, from a regional level, it has not been my experience in Chicago where that's been very accepted. So how, I mean, what was the catalyst and how well received was it in terms of dispersing the concentration of poverty or affordable housing? Yeah, well, that, that's a tough one. I mean, it, it's, it's really just been a decision that happened in the last six or seven months. So um, I would say from the, from the county perspective, they're definitely open. We've, we've developed a partnership with Winnebago County Housing Authority, and they actually helped us apply for the implementation grant for Rockford. So if we get that grant, it's a partnership between the city and the county, which I think is really great. Um, we'll see... It's always difficult to move public housing around a region, and, and you know it's one of those things that people don't want in their backyard. They're, they may not say it in a public meeting, but it's it's something that that's very touchy. So uh, hopefully we can we can um, make that happen, and and you know really help to connect people to, to resources that are out there because that's what it's all about is connecting people to opportunity. I think I want to piggyback on off of. Uh, the past couple of questions here, uh, I know that the market dynamics are incredibly different between the two neighborhoods that you're talking about here. And I was kind of surprised to see that in the Rockford plan, there is new infill housing. And I'm wondering if there's been a market analysis to see if a weak market neighborhood can actually uh, support new housing uh, and maybe what's being done to tweak that market dynamic uh, right. in hopes of generating more interest. I understand in Austin, pretty much whatever goes on that site is going to be sold. Yeah. I mean, it's going to people are going to inhabit the structures that get built on that site. But I think it's a bigger risk in a weak market neighborhood Absolutely. like the one in Rockford. Absolutely, and that's why we we tried to identify the blocks where you could get the most bang for your buck if you're going to provide more housing. The housing, the first wave of housing is going to have to have some sort of subsidy to it because that's, that's really going to be the only thing that, that pencils out in that, in that neighborhood. So uh, that's, that's going to be tricky, and we're, we're working with the developer to kind of look through the, the different financing tools for that. That's why we can't say there's going to be new housing throughout the neighborhood. We, need, we needed to pinpoint certain blocks where you could say, all right, if you build five new homes on this block, and you have four or five homes that are in really good shape right now, that all of a sudden you have, you have like a critical mass of um, you know, solid housing in the neighborhood and really try to like strategically pinpoint where that should go because you can't just expect the market to come in and build all of this. So that's part of what we've tried to tee up in the plan. I'm curious about um, the relationship between um, your firm as the planner and the developer. Mm -hmm. In Chicago, the way that Chicago Housing Authority has set up their um, redevelopment efforts has been to bring a developer on and then let them hire a planner and basically dictate sort of what the process is and uh, have a pretty heavy hand in terms of steering uh, the direction of the process. And your impression... Your, your presentation, Chris, the impression that it's kind of been sort of the reverse story in these two test cases, and I'm curious, you know, what your impressions are of that and what 
those two different models might say about the, the result. Right. No, it's absolutely been a reverse case. I think in Rockford, uh, we were 16 months into the process before a developer was hired by the public housing agency. In Austin, they came, they came on about halfway through, so it's a little different. In Rockford, we set up the kind of the, all of the recommendations for the, the housing in the neighborhood and on the site, and then the developer came in and, and kind of crunched the numbers and tried to figure out if it was feasible. In Austin, we're working hand-in-hand -hand with the developer to actually do the housing portion of the plan, and I think it's going to be stronger um, the fact, just based on the fact that we're doing that. We're working together. Um, in, in Rockford, we have uh, Gorman, who's the developer. In Austin, we have McCormick, Baron Salazar. So, you know, these are, these are national firms. They're really reputable. But I think the, the ability to work with the developer and their architects during the planning stage is going gonna, is gonna to really create something that's realistic and implementable and really uh, have the backing of, of the residents and the neighborhood as a whole. But I think it's, it's, it's really a, it's the way that you need to do it. You can't just start with the developer that has a number of different units that they want to put on the site and then try, try to create a neighborhood plan around that. This is a different way of looking at redeveloping public housing because it's really much more comprehensive into the neighborhood and, and cohesive amongst the different types of services you're trying to set up. So it's a great question. I may have missed this because I got here a little late, but when HUD does award an implementation grant, how much are they funding? Is it a percent, and is it set up to be a challenge grant? How how do they decide how much they're going to grant and what portion of the project budget they will grant? Yeah, it changes every year. I think the latest uh, round of funding, they were given about $30 million to each community. You need to have matching funds. You need to have a lot of partnerships in place. So it's not just like, here we're going to fund it all. There needs to be all these different um, partnerships set up amongst the city and the housing authority, and, and in the case of Rockford, the Winnebago, housing, or Winnebago County Housing, to leverage the money that's coming from HUD. And of that $30 million, only a certain portion of it goes to redevelopment of housing, another portion goes to this, the services, and the, peop the, you know, the, the neighborhoods and the people portions of the plan. So it really has to take a, a wider net. Well, for the sake of time, will that be the final word? Let's have one more round of applause for Adam Rosa. <laughs> on behalf of the American Planning Association, I want to thank Adam Rosa for a thought-provoking and informative program on neighborhood planning. Thanks also to the many APA staff members who help make this program possible every month. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. I'm David Morley.